This is Milton Walters and you're listening to Adapting in My Grief. Grief as we know is tough. With all the support in the world it's tough. Going to work can be strange, awkward and often uncomfortable. It can be hard to relate to your friends and family. Everything's turned on its head. My own experience is certainly different from others and that's understandable as it's a very specific individual roller coaster of emotions that you're undertaking. Some people are better at keeping engaged in their respective worlds but for those who feel isolated and struggle to engage it's brutal. This episode's guest Jock Cheatham was one of those people who struggled through his lack of connection at that time post his partner's death. Last year, I read a piece in The Guardian that was written by Jock. It was titled, When my partner died, I couldn't ask for help. I'm sharing in the hope others will reach out. Jock's partner narrowly had died in 2017. Osteopetrosis is a bone disease that, that literally can cause bones to dissolve and break. It's simply shocking. Jock, welcome. Hi, Milton. How are you? I'm okay. I'm sitting here looking at a photo of Narrowly as it happened to have in my office and uh, it's it's another working day. Well, look, I think probably best place to start, how did you and Narrowly meet and how long ago was that? Well, I'd been working at the Sydney Morning Herald as a sub-editor for a, a few months for a while and, and Narrowly had been actually at Fairfax for years and we met sitting next to each other at computers in the office producing the newspaper uh, on the evening shift, which is when sub-editors work. Eventually, not that long after, we um, suggested to go out for a drink in the break and then one after work, and then we started to talk about a few different things and um, had a uh, collaboration on, a, on an idea, a, a project to have a party, and so we, we kind of um, worked on that. And, and eventually, um, well, it wasn't eventually, it was you know, fairly, fairly soon. After a, a few months, we became an item and that party became a, a kind of a celebration of our, our, us getting together when we did have that party together we, that we organised. And what year was that, uh, roughly? 2005. I mentioned osteopetrosis just in the introduction there. Has, was that something that narrowly had been living with or was that something that was later diagnosed um uh, when narrowly you met was her? diagnosed at three weeks old with osteopetrosis so she was a healthy baby and and a healthy kid but the problem was her bones were were brittle another name for the um, condition is chalk bone i think that's a very old-fashioned name and and that sort of shows how easily they snap. And throughout her life, Nerily had a, a lot of problems with fractures, and, and including in her childhood. And probably the, the biggest way that it manifested when she was young, apart from having to be in traction when she had a, a major break when she was about four, um, was when she was seven, she started to lose her sight because there was calcification on her optic nerve canal. And that meant that the, the optic nerve canal was shrinking and squeezing her optic nerve. And she was going to go blind at the age of seven. Neurosurgeons at Royal North Shore Hospital were actually at the forefront and did some reasonably radical, certainly innovative and, and, and ahead of their, their time surgery, and they saved her sight. 
she lost some of the sight in one eye and saved the other eye. And so she was able to live, you know, with, a, with very um, great ability to see, just some, some sight disability, but, you know, a functional life. She, she continued on. Certainly challenging, um, but I suppose that if you've been, if you've, it's all you've ever known as a child, um, as an adult, you've learned to live with it. Yes, even as a child, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it'd be just extraordinarily challenging to sort of undertake a normal existence of things what all kids do. I mean, for parents with a child with that condition, I can only imagine how challenging it must have been. When did you guys decide that it was time to get out of Sydney and 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 start something new in your life? Well, in our time together, living together um, for about 12 years in Sydney, we had travelled, Nerily had done her PhD and we had bought a house together, but I got offered a job in Bathurst that started at the beginning of 2017, just as Nerily was finishing her PhD, and because it was in a regional area, it actually suited Nerily because her work was in regional areas. So we both thought there were opportunities and we moved to Bathurst. We moved into a house that that suited us and suited narrowly, particularly with its convenience and so on because she didn't drive and it was flat and, and everything. And, uh, yeah, we set up a rental house there. And for those of us that are interstate, how far is Bathurst from Sydney roughly? The simplest thing is to just think of going three hours west from central Sydney in a car, just drive three hours straight west over the Blue Mountains and, and you'll be there in the Anywhere. land of the Bathurst 1000. <laughs> yes, that's right, Mount as we Panorama. all know it for. So when you, you got there, and I read in the article, um, in the, the article in The Guardian that you wrote, um, things changed pretty quickly in terms of her condition. Yeah, there was something just a little bit sort of niggly and perhaps a little bit sort of of a warning sign when we moved. But really within a few weeks, that worsened and narrowly was in hospital, actually back in Sydney, in Western Sydney in hospital, and trying to deal with this um, infection that she got in her jaw, which is related to osteoporosis because the bone had died. Mm. And so at that stage, um, was there any sort of sign of where this was likely to progress to or did it sort of things unfold relatively quickly? There was certainly hope that things would be okay because the same thing had happened and been resolved with some fairly radical um, dental surgery, but it was um, surgery that was that was sort of containable. You know, it was it was and and it, and it did eventually succeed on the other side of her mouth. So that was the hope was was that that would happen again. It wasn't certain. And if it didn't happen, it was sort of scary as to what might happen with her jaw. But then just suddenly at the same time and perhaps coincidentally or perhaps because her condition was was affecting her bones much more dramatically at that time, her sight was threatened as well. So there was a sense that um, that her sight was in danger. So this was by the middle of 2017, her sight was... Um, threatened and her jaw was threatened and she was in a lot of pain. But she was in hospital in Western Sydney? She was. She was in and out, you know, treat, treated with um, antibiotics on a drip and um, looking into her eye and, and, and 
seeing if that was treatable and things like that. So, Jock, were you, I mean, you just moved there to take on a new role at um, the university. So, how, I mean, how was that for you? Were you able to take time off or, I mean, once again, these are sort of, you know, the life stuff, isn't it? That, you know, work still keeps going whilst, you know, there's hellish things are happening, you know, uh, in your personal life. Yeah, well, be- because I I only taught face-to-face, you know, a few hours, like, I don't know, say, say six or eight hours, um, and then I taught online a, a reasonable amount and there was marking and preparation. A lot of my job I could do from the hospital. So I'd spend... Um, a day or two in Sydney and then go down and spend the time with narrowly in the hospital and, and be working there. And then we would come back, you know, after a few weeks and then things would deteriorate and we'd have to leave Bathurst again and go back to the hospital. But we did that for about six months till things took a turn. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, when you're in the midst of it, like you, you were as her partner, you're probably not... I mean, you're just doing the do, really, aren't you? You're existing, you're doing the work, you just, you don't know that, I mean, it's obviously quite traumatic, the whole thing that's unfolding, but when you're in the midst of it, um, you know nothing more than to just keep going. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you could give up, I suppose that's an option. It's not obviously an option that happened or that I considered, but it's much like anything else that that comes up. You, you deal with it. It's just um, more difficult and more dramatic and, and scarier, initially anyway, and then things just got worse and worse. But that's right, you know, I, I, was, I was working and I was supporting Narrowly and luckily I had a lot of flexibility. So when Narrowly uh, did die, um, had that been a, was it, obvious that you know things were going south you know towards the end and, and it was unfortunately um that was the most likely conclusion no not at all i mean it 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 really happened in about four or five stages at no stage did any doctor say that her life was in danger or she was going to die the the first stage was her jaw getting really bad then she actually lost her vision at Christmas 2017 and her jaw was under control because she was wearing a little bottle of antibiotics on her body, which we replaced every day at Bathurst Hospital. We just took a trip up and, and that whole situation was sorted there. But she had no vision in early 2018 and, and so we were dealing with life of of suddenly narrowly having lost her vision so she had that trauma and that challenge and i had to support her so i worked half time part time so i had to change that and and but we were in bathurst and we did have some you know some some good times because she wasn't quite as sick even though she'd lost her sight so it was kind of a it was a it was a difficult time but it was also a time where we had um, time together and we could do things but then she had to face her jaw problem and then um, the decision was she couldn't stay on that bottle forever so she got a p- piece of her jaw cut out in Sydney and that went wrong um, within some kind of infection. She spent 11 days in a coma um, and I was there with her the whole time in uh, ICU. But then we came home again 
um, after that op and that was sort of considered successful. And then I'm not sure, maybe that was mid-2018, then three or four weeks after that, Narrowly was admitted to Prince of Wales Hospital back in Sydney, um, this time with trouble walking, and then she lost the ability to walk. And it was some it was the neurological department that that Narrowly was admitted to. And at that point, she said, or soon after, she said she thought she was going to die. Everybody else or the doctors said, no, she wasn't. And then she spent about four months with a, a kind of not very clearly diagnosed autoimmune problem in her brain. And that meant that she was immobile. And at times she even lost a bit of her hearing. And so she was. Um, she didn't have any sight. She couldn't move, and sometimes she couldn't hear. But mostly, mostly she could hear. Luckily, and um, it was psychologically that was very difficult. It just seemed to be for about eighteen months of her illness that just, just when we thought things, you know, we hoped things would get better, but just when we thought they, in a way, couldn't get any worse, there was a whole new wet level of worse that happened next, and that. That just kept happening and then I suppose that's that's the same with her dying because that wasn't anticipated I just went home that night having said goodbye and had a you know um, a, a, ch a chat it wasn't always easy to talk because her brain was disrupted but we could we could have times when we when we talked and we did that night and I, I went home and then got a call just before I was going to come in early the next morning um, that narrowly had passed away. And there was no there was no suggestion that that was coming. Yes. I mean, I can't even imagine. It's uh, such a hellish shock, I you know, suppose. It's all very well. One, one thing, if you, you realise this is happening, but when you get a call like that uh, out of the blue, uh, well, it's not out of the blue, but I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, yeah, extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, I mean, at the, the end of four months in hospital, that's the the thing, you know, four months in hospital, I, I was living there a lot of that time too, in the room, because, um, you know, because Narrowly didn't have her sight, she needed support. And so, you know, it's it's not a good way to go out, I think, spending your last four months in hospital. No, no, it certainly isn't. One of the things you spoke about in uh, in the article that you wrote was that you wished you'd been more open, more vulnerable, and been able to reach out to people more post Nerali's death. Um, when, when did you realise that, in terms of you know, that connection, that you were somewhat isolated? I mean, you know, did you have a lot of support? You, you, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of support around you at that time, or there was support there, but you didn't reach out for it. Well, I mean, I don't even know what support is. There, there's nothing that um anyone can really do and it i think it helps to talk and i did talk to people it was easier when i had some leave and i was spending some time in sydney because basically all my friends were in sydney and all of our friends and that was better because i was able to see people a bit more but with some of my closest friends um the there was a sense that they that they weren't much use, and and I don't think that's necessarily them, and I don't think that's necessarily me. 
I just think that there are some situations that are irresolvable and, you know, I felt as though I was inconsolable. So, you know, there, there was no consolation. Um, and that's the sort of the first period after losing Narrowly, say six weeks um, to say eight weeks. And then some of the grieving literature that I've read said that, you know, it's after that that things get worse. And it was that was the point when I went back to Bathurst and I was actually a lot more isolated. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and you'd had that time off from the workplace or from teaching. I mean, how was it at the workplace when you went back in there? Well, the workplace, um, one, one of my colleagues um, said, welcome back in a bright voice. And nobody mentioned anything, really. I think one or two people had sent an email or three or four people. Um, nobody said anything or mentioned anything about it. I, you know, it's a pretty reasonable assumption, I think, that they were, they were scared to do that or obviously they didn't know what to say. But, um, you know, there was nothing. Um, one, one colleague um, had asked me around... Um, for dinner and then asked me around for a barbecue and I took that as a as a supportive um, gesture that it was. Um, and at one point, you know, after a few weeks or months, someone asked, asked me out for a, a drink um, after work, um, at which point, you know, we're just having the normal chit chat and so on and 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 that and that was it. There was no there was nothing really. God. Interestingly, I can't help but ask, but post-writing that article, did anyone from your workplace look back on that and sort of say, you know, we actually, uh, we really could have done so much better, Jock, than what we did here? Because, I mean, to, to think of, you know, no one really checking in on you or saying to you, look, we're going to catch up every couple of weeks just to see how you're travelling, what can we do? Um, biggest belief, really. Yeah, well, it's possible that they that 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 they people thought they were doing that because you know, um, from time to time, um, someone would say "How are you?" But in a way that sort of was like everyone says "How are you?" You know, like you know, like there didn't seem to be to me anything um, sort of different. But maybe what they were doing to them felt like they were checking in. Um, to me, it felt like just it was just the normal thing of, you know, the way a workplace operates. But nobody um, reflected upon the Guardian article from work. Um, one or two people might have mentioned that they saw it perhaps, but um, that's all. Um, someone congratulated me on it, I assume, because it was published in a prestigious journal but I, I'm kind of used to that um, you know as a journalist so I don't know I didn't feel like congratulations were really in order but um, that but interestingly though a lot of people did read it so I don't even know if they read it around here but they read it in Sydney so a lot of acquaintances read it and they reached out and a lot of um, friends read it and they reached out. Obviously, I sent it to a few few friends, but it was very widely read by people I know, and and they responded. And a few people responded like you as well to sort of from from um, the community. And 
Um, it was the friends who were the most helpful, the most supportive, the most empathetic, who actually apologised that they didn't do more. And that just shows, I think, that the ones who do the most and take the most responsibility, they keep doing that. They keep, they keep feeling that responsibility and they, they are able to take responsibility and apologise, even though really they're probably the ones that, that don't need to because they're the ones that, that, that were able to both spend the time and to do it well. Um, I don't know if that's quite ironic necessarily. It is it's sort of ironic in a way. One of the things that, you know, um, when I read that article was that, you know, you were sort of, it, to me, it, it felt like you were saying, God, I really wished I could have reached out more. But I mean, that's not, may not be your personality. So why is it incumbent on the person grieving to tell people they're in trouble? You know, why can't people actually be, you know, approaching you? I mean, so I suppose the, the observation is, you know, do you think you're a bit tough on yourself in terms of saying, I wish I could have reached out? Well, I mean, I have to admit that part of my motivation for writing it was that I wanted to blame other people and for right. not reaching out. And I wanted to tell people in general to reach out in the sense of, you know, I wanted to advocate for or to advise people to reach out to people who are grieving. That is something that maybe I was trying to just encourage at the same time, through the process of thinking about it all over the months and years, it's obvious that I, I didn't reach out as well. I don't quite know what the mix of blame is then, if there is blame or responsibility or exactly what happened. So because obviously I was, I was in the situation in terms of not reaching out. So I, I did actually reach out in the sense that I, I went to a range of different counsellors and I did that consistently. And then also I reached out when I met Mia as well and, and, um, and she was supportive and we started a relationship. But I suppose my point about this sort of complicated dance between the, the grieving person and the pers people around them is that the grieving person is going to find it very difficult to initiate because they're grieving. And uh, in my case, I was traumatised. It's quite possible perhaps grieving is a form of trauma all the time. I, I don't know, but there'd be different levels of it. Mine felt fairly, fairly intense. Um, so I think I then said, well, please feel it's maybe more incumbent on you as person um, who's around someone who's grieving to initiate because I think people who are grieving can respond to a certain extent to people reaching out to them, to people initiating, but I'm not, I, I think the initiation is, is particularly hard. Now, whether that's just the case for men or whether it's the case for some men or whether it's the case for me and two or three other men in the world, I don't really know. Um, but I'm pretty sure that that freezing effect of, of trauma and grief is a factor that's important for people to know about and to consider mm. when they think also about Also challenging um, for a friendship group or community um, when somebody has been ill for quite a while, and as you said, you were in and out of hospital and um, you know over a period of time, and that's certainly been my experience that um, you know people just got tired over the journey of you know checking you know, how I was, um, but it was um, 
it doesn't make it any easier. That was, I suppose, the point I'm getting at. It, it still is extraordinarily challenging and difficult. That you know, because when when the music does stop and and the person has died, I mean, it's a pretty lonely place. I think you're right. I think it's it's a really interesting dance in terms of that reaching out from the community and 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 the person who is grieving's ability to reach out and and I think it's. I mean, I I, I remember in, in one of our discussions you took. You know, I wished I could have been more vulnerable, but I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of think that as as a man in my fifties um, and of that sort of era, um, I wished I could do it a lot better than I do. It's not something that you know f- for men necessarily comes that easy i i don't think especially of you know of my generation yeah and i'm a similar age and generation to you although you might be uh just on the other side and a baby boomer and i'm a gen x for what it's worth (laughs) i think i've got you covered it's pretty similar (laughs) in terms of age but you know i i don't even know how different it is for a lot of men who are younger but certainly some some would be different because Uh vulnerability is more acceptable as 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 the decades sort of go on in terms of society and culture, um, but um, I mean your your initial point about about being vulnerable, you know, this idea of macho. Maybe we're not that macho, but we're sort of stoical. I think that's in the yes. culture, you know, like e- yep. even stuff about Anzacs and you know, you know the the carving a country out of the bush and all of that kind of Anglo mythology that exists in Australia, um, that I think does contribute to the way that we're constructed as men and as, as people. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, there's a lot of cultural stuff about how we should behave and that affects us in ways that we're not even necessarily conscious of. Um, and it may be really good for getting things done. Um, which may be good for us and may be good for our employers who are making money off us. It may not be good for us uh, as humans in certain circumstances. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm just grasping for something to say in response to what you were saying about vulnerability. Could you just repeat what you, you sort of were saying? Because I, I had a point there. Um, you were saying about being vulnerable yourself. Well, I just think for men, I mean, and I'm, you know, and, and myself particularly, because I remember thinking back to my experience was that I wished I could have been more vulnerable in the workplace, but um, because they might have been, you know, um, might have been able to react to me better. But you know, I, I just don't know that I necessarily could have done it at that time. You know, I, 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 you know, going through an event like you know I went through and like you've gone through I look back on it and think oh, I think I probably could be more vulnerable now but then I don't think I could be um, it was just you know you're just in the in the zone you didn't want to talk about it um, all the time or you know it was it was just very difficult so I suppose what I'm trying to wrap that up by saying is that you know it, it may be easy to be to say be emotionally available be vulnerable but it's not, it's not that easy if it's not you yeah, that's true. And and what if it isn't you? I thought I was an open, modern, sensitive guy. And maybe when I was 22, 24, I was for that era in 1988. Maybe I was a modern, sensitive, open guy compared to all the other guys around. But actually, when faced with this experience... I don't know that I actually am, and my sense of myself as kind of 
like that. Maybe maybe even even a sense of myself as having the ability to express vulnerability, um, to be open and stuff. Actually, maybe that's actually not true. And like you, though, I feel like I've grown, so I couldn't do certain things then that I can do now. You know, talking on stage about it um, and writing about it in public when when I couldn't talk about it in private to friends or, well, very much. Certainly there were a lot of, you know, limits on it. You know, that's a big change across a, a period of, of um, months and, and just a few years. Absolutely. Um, one of the um, uh, the things that I read was about the, the festival, which was uh, that multicultural festival of storytelling. Now, was that what Nerily had studied through her PhD that you took forward as something? How, how did that eventuate? And, and what sort of part did that play in sort of getting you moving again? So Nerily wanted to have a legacy, and I agreed that I would help to do that, or I suppose just do that myself. And um, Nerily's work was in... Um, her PhD work was in multiculturalism in regional education. And we had planned different parts and talked about things around a multicultural festival and a storytelling festival and a multicultural storytelling festival. So I just I just picked that up um, pretty much as soon as, you know, within a few weeks, soon after Nerily's funeral and started working on that and I did get a lot of help and support from people who were responsive in Bathurst in terms of putting events on and we did that at Harmony Day and we did that at also happened to be Nerily's birthday so we ran we ran seven events in Bathurst in that first festival in 2019 and Nerily's family came and out um my friends came and my family came and people from Bathurst came. And so it was explicitly kind of dedicated to Merrily, but it was also an extension of her work in the direction that, that she would have gone and had already just taken the first little steps on. So specifically, storytelling festival, I suppose, um, is it people from different cultures talking about how they got to Australia or how their life has been? I mean, what is the basis for the festival in terms of its objective and what it does? Well, it's pretty broad, but it's intended, you know, because that, that, that term is a bit broad, isn't it? But it's intended to be um, diverse, inclusive and multicultural. And so the very first event was two Wiradjuri elders from this area talking about the role of storytelling in culture. So they, and that's, that's up on, on YouTube and on the bathyststorytelling.com web, website. Um, please excuse my computer there. The whole um, festival had a, different events that were like that. So those, those people kindly shared their insights into culture. Um, we looked at Nerilee's PhD, actually, and got her supervisors along. We had a Chinese storytelling at the library for kids. We had a refugee from the local um, who was supported by the local refugee support group tell his story of coming from Sri Lanka, you know, to Australia and ending up in Bathurst. And we had um, someone talking about multicultural work in Western Sydney using storytelling. And lastly, we had a 
were actually um, reflecting on Merrilee's and my experience in a storytelling circle in a local college. So we had a smoking ceremony and I told the story, really I told the story of Merrilee's illness and what was positive and what was difficult and, and so on. And uh, the, the Wiradjuri elders responded with their wisdom and their sort of insights. And, and it was a really unique experience. And that's, that was on Merrilee's birthday and that closed off the festival. Um, they revealed themselves to be perceptive and sensitive people who had something to contribute uh, to um, my experience and to our experience because Nerali's parents were there too and and um and and that was quite you know amazing that people that we ask kind of you know randomly in a sense because you know on the basis that they were um they were sort of part of the theme if you like you know like we were trying to to open up to Bathurst to 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 to, to voices that wanted to contribute and we did that and it was and what the, the way they responded was so um incredible because it was empathetic and it was grounded and it was kind of authentic from within themselves and um that's a you know that's a pretty amazing experience it's a wonderful way of bringing community together isn't it through telling sort of you know, diverse and inclusive stories like that. Yeah, and it did. And it really brought them together. Literally, obviously, all the events were live. But also that last event was in the round. It was a circle. Obviously, didn't happen in 2020, I wouldn't have thought. We did it online. Oh, did you? Oh, we well done. We did it online in 2020. <laughs> we moved it within a few days. Um, we, we found out what Zoom was. And then so we, we did... We did a session on social connection and then we did a session on the theme of how I got here and people shared the stories they'd written for a competition, um, including a 12-year-old Sri Lankan girl who told her refugee story from her perspective and she was the winner. And, and this year we've got um, Live Again in Bathurst. So there's an event on Meet the Media, which obviously has a connection to, to Nerily in the sense that she was a journalist. Um, and the idea there is that, so this year I'm thinking, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're non-Anglo or something to be multicultural, right? We're all, we're all part of a culture and we're all part of multicultural. And that includes Anglos and Anglo-Celtics or whatever, Anglo-Irish and all the other people that were the, um, the sort of British um, influx of immigration into Australia. Anyway, um, Meet the Media is one event, so we're speaking to a local editor and radio presenter and we'll talk about storytelling and diversity and multiculturalism and so on and just being community in Bathurst. And then the other event is the Timor-Leste Consul General from Sydney is visiting to share stories from East Timor. So he's uh, experienced uh, war and um, the independent struggle personally and... He's experienced, you know, triumph and independence and politics uh, after the Indonesians left East Timor. So he's going to come and bring that to this community and, and meet up with, with people who are in solidarity with uh, East Timor, of which they, they, 
those those people exist all over Australia, and 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 there'll be some here in Bathurst too who who have that connection. So when is the festival, Jock? It's it's um it's basically established at this stage uh, in the pattern of being on Harmony Day or Harmony Week. So Harmony Days March twenty one every year, and Harmony Weeks basically the week around or before that. And so you know, Harmony Day or Harmony Week is the federal government sort of designated sort of you know multicultural week or day and uh it's at the same time as the international day against racial discrimination but it's sort of reframed racial discrimination into um, the celebration of australia's um, success as the government wants to frame it in terms of multiculturalism so it's it's sort of framed positively rightly or wrongly or in or or, or just neutrally um, rather than that, you know, international version of it. And through working with, uh, or I suppose not working with, but the establishment of the festival, uh, you met your new partner. Yeah, it was it was around that time. So I met Miao um, back in in the days when, um, you know, that I was alone in Bathurst. And and she was there for me, and and I was there for her, I suppose. And a little bit more than a year ago, we got married, and then um, we've now got a six month old baby called Judo. Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you about the PhD in documentary that you're uh, pursuing. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? And what do you hope for that to you know achieve, and why you're doing it? Well, one of the only promises that what can you say to someone who's dying? What could I say to Nerily? I mean, what, you know, what what could I say? What could we say to each other? I mean, apart from what we felt at the time, but what could we say about the future? And so, really, a lot of it was about that we did say and 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 talk about a bit was about legacy and Nerily's legacy and my promise to do something like that. So that included telling her story, um, I said I would, and, um, and, and narrowly wanted that, and also continuing her work to the extent that I could do that. So I'm, I'm starting a documentary using various footage that I collected and, and over the years to tell the story of Nerily's life and her triumph over a rare disease. And then I'll also look at how she coped with illness and dying, but how we dealt with it, really. And then I may, well, I'll probably also look at grieving. And I happen to be doing that within a PhD because I'm an academic. But that's two parts. I'll make the doco and then the academic theoretical bit will be reflection in a deep researched way upon the themes such as grieving or legacy or storytelling as legacy and 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 also rare diseases and illness and dying so that that's a, a whole project that will also include looking at the festival so the festival is Nerily's legacy so that will be part of the story it's uh, a wonderful undertaking and uh, I mean uh, how long do you think it'll take you to pull it all together well, I'm doing it part-time. It'll take a couple of years to do the doco, hopefully at most, and then, you know, maybe three years or four to do it, to write it all up in a way that sort of contributes to, to research. 
It's been a real pleasure speaking to you because I, I, I think that, you know, when we've had our previous discussions, Jock, um, you know, I was sort of really touched by, you know, what you'd said about, you know, or you'd stated in that article you wrote about, you know, the inability to, to reach out to people. And one of the things that, you know, I, I've been looking at in terms of the workplace was that, you know, I just didn't see the onus was on you to actually have to do it. Um, and yet you could feel like, you know, you're, you're pushing people away. But, um, you know, that's not in your case. That certainly wasn't the case. So, um I just feel it's a really interesting message that, you know, for, for people listening is that, you know, when someone is grieving, um, you know, you've, you've just got to turn up or you, you know, or just the smallest comments or the smallest actions can really move the needle a lot on the way you're feeling. Um, and, you know, that can, you know, you're going to have to do the laps around the track with grief. There's, there's no doubt about that. It's, it's tough. It's hard. It's brutal. But that kindness, and you did use the word empathy in terms of the community of Bathurst around the, um, the storytelling. I mean, that to me can just make such a hell of a difference to the way people move forward. Um, you know, after you know an event that in their lives can be absolutely seismic. Um, so many thanks um, for your time today and uh, look forward to, to following the Jock Cheatham story and uh, how the festival goes and the doco, mate. So thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for your time for making the effort to sort of share your vision of what we need to do.